I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to Face to Face. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. This is a show about change and what's next. It's a show that asks questions and peels back the layers of our average everyday experience and goes beyond scratching the surface. We interview people doing incredible things who are making a difference around the globe. Join me as we listen in and get one step closer to understanding that big ideas shared create collaboration. Collaboration can inspire community and communities create social change. I'm David Peck and this is Face to Face. So today I had the pleasure of uh, interviewing an academic from York University. His name's Dennis Rayfield. Dennis and I have never met, but I've read his book called Poverty in Canada. It's it's a it's a it's 
it's quite the study. It's full of stats. It's full of quotes. It's full of other people coming to bear on an issue that he is incredibly passionate about and wants to see change. And, and we and we talk about poverty. What, what does it mean to be in absolute poverty versus relative poverty? We talked about the working poor. We talked about things like situational poverty and about this whole notion of what, what do you need to get by? And uh, he's just come out of uh, teaching a course at York called Poverty and health. So these issues were really forefront in his mind. And he wants to talk. I, 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 he doesn't want to talk. He does talk a lot about the notion of influence and power and about how that has to be turned on its head. We talked about the greedy bastards hypothesis and about the Canadian Council of Chief Executives um, and about the film by David Langeal called Poor No More. I mean, there's a lot going on here. And probably one of the most important things we addressed was this whole notion of the social determinants of health. You're going to enjoy this interview. You're going to learn a heck of a lot. And I hope you can pick up, pick up his book, uh, Poverty in Canada, published by Canadian Scholars Press. Stay tuned. Well, welcome to Face to Face, and we are back live again today. Here, it's actually a Sunday, a rainy, sunny uh, Sunday afternoon, not sunny. And we are joined uh, by a professor from York University by the name of Dennis Rayfield. Thanks, Dennis, for joining us today. Okay. Dennis is the professor of health policy and management at York. He's the author of... Um, hmm. Just a few, uh, over 250 publications, uh, public policy, poverty, social determinants of health. Those are some of the things that we're going to talk about uh, uh, Talk about today. Dennis, I mean, so I live in North Oakville. Most of my uh, listeners will know that. Um, believe me, the, the irony is not lost on me that I work in, in this sector and I live in, uh, you know, the richest place in Canada. Tell me about poverty in Canada. I, I mean, I, I spend a lot of my time working on projects overseas, working in the global south, Cambodia, Southeast Asia. We're talking about 65 cents a day. That's what people think of when they think of poverty. Can you tell me a little bit more uh, about that here in the Canadian context? Well, in developed countries, the United Nations and most researchers have come to see poverty in terms of what we might call relative social and material deprivation. And the best way to get right, to cut right to the chase yep. is internationally and in Canada and Ontario especially. Poverty is thought of as a situation where a family or an individual has less than half the median income. So, for example, if the average uh, family uh, income in Canada is 50000 right? then if your family is earning less than 25000 then you are said to be in a situation where you're not able to do the kinds of things that's expected of a member in society. And this definition first came out about 1992 with Peter Townsend. And as it turns out, it's an in incredibly valid definition right. in that if you talk to people either in Britain or in Canada and you ask them, what do you need to get by? Right. Uh, they, right. It tends to track very closely to that uh, measurement. It also turns out in terms of uh, health that it turns out that those people that are indeed less than half that median, whether they're individuals or families, right. show a wide range of health and psychosocial and educational and social problems. So are we talking about things like, um, you know, children not having access to community centers or uh, children not having access to extracurricular activities, those kinds of things? Well, what? that's one way, but let me put it this yeah. way. We're talking about families 
where when expenses come up, people cannot afford it. Right. So we're talking about kids not having boots when during the winter. We're talking about kids not possibly having a second pair of pants. We're talking about an electrical fixture that right. blows and right. families are not able to replace it. So we're talking about uh, Statistics Canada, when they talk about measurement, talk about it as living in straightened circumstances. Hmm. Say, say that again, living in... Uh, see, they have this low-income cutoff measure, which yes, is yes. similar to the definition I just gave you. And they define it as, as living in straightened situations, hmm. S-T-R-A-I-T-N-E-D. And basically, uh, Mel Hertig captured it in his title, uh, Pay the Rent or Feed the Kids. And we're talking about overall about it varies from about 12 to 15% of the population. In, in Toronto, it's now 29% of the population. Which is, which is incredibly high. Oh, yes. Uh, it turns out that when you look at where we are at 13 to 15%, the United States is at 22%. Uh, some of the Scandinavian countries had been as low as 5%. But it's different, though, because if you're poor in Scandinavia, let's say it's 6 7% in Scandinavia, you may be poor, but you're still getting the free child care, and you're still right. getting the housing subsidy, and you're still getting free university tuition. So the situation of poverty in Canada is not only do you have that income that's less than half, but generally you don't get anything else. So would you would you say the distinction, say, between a country like Canada and Cambodia, which is one of the areas where I work, the kind of poverty that we're talking about in the global south largely is kind of a, it's about basic necessities of life. Yeah, the term that the United Nations uh, calls that is absolute poverty. Absolute poverty. Now, we have absolute poverty here as well. Uh, the Innocente Research Center uh, estimates that about 5 to 6% is our families living in absolute poverty. So these are the food. These are the people in the uh, homeless shelters using mm. the food banks. Sure, uh, people in native reserves. So you're talking about maybe five, six percent in absolute poverty, and then you add the extra seven, eight uh, percent of the people that we might call working poor. Right. But these people and are not able to do the kinds of things that one would expect in an advanced society. Right. You don't see them at the zoos. Uh, I've done studies where kids don't go to movies. They don't go to baseball games. Uh, I interviewed a couple of kids in my neighborhood, which is Danforth and Pape, and I said, what, is there, what are the things you like to do? And he said, man, there's nothing to do around here. <laughs> I said, nothing? And he said, No. And at that time, when I did the study, going to the, the roof deck at uh, what we used to call the Sky Dome, used right. to be $3 a ticket. Right. And these could, kids couldn't even go they, they couldn't, to, to a they, Blue Jays game. They couldn't even get, get there. Yeah. But when you think of, you know, what's the advantage of living in a country like Canada, and you think movies, shows, the zoo, the science center, the symphony, uh, these, these people that are we 
identified as poor are unable to do that. So do you think that, I mean, do you think in some ways, I mean, it seems to me that if, if we equivocate with this whole idea of poverty across the board, uh, we're going to do somebody a disservice along the way. Um, do you think that some more work has to be done there from a journalistic perspective or from a political perspective to say, to educate the public, to educate people like me, to say, you know, the suburban, the city dweller, to say, hang on a second here, this is what we're talking about. You know, and I, here's think the the problem, I think the problem isn't that people don't know there's poor people. I think, like, you know, the issue of smoking or whatever, people get it that there are people that are poor. What they don't understand are the sources of it. Right. So they will tend to, if they're very, very conservative, they'll, turn to, they'll tend to be pejorative. Right. So that's the poor bash. They're lazy. They don't know how to take sure, care of their sure. kids. And then you have the more enlightened view. And the more enlightened view is, well, they weren't born like that, but a culture of poverty has developed. Right. So they tend to individualize it. They tend to see it as motivational. They tend to see it. I think many middle-class and upper-middle-class Canadians have the view that if you play your card right, you become a lawyer or a chemist right. or a right. physicist. And if you people don't have the wherewithal, then you deserve what you get. Yeah, yeah, no, there's a, there's a, a self, um, it's a, oh, it's almost like a, uh, what's the, what's the, what's the cliche, what's the phrase I'm looking for here, you know, well, I mean, I, I think over, overseas, same thing, when people point the finger at, at some of the work that I'm doing, it's, well, typically people get what they deserve, right? Um, yeah, and, God, and, oh, here you go, God helps those who help themselves, right? Yeah, but is the it, thing is, the people that shape the discourse are people that do well in school, that are good with words. Mm. And they value that. And I said to my class, I said, look, I said, some people, for whatever reason, they don't want to read books. They don't want to be like us. They want to live their lives. And just because somebody decides they're going to work in service or somebody's going to work in a department store, that's no reason that they should be kept from having a decent life right. like other people. And luckily, we have some of these Scandinavian or even some of the conservative uh, European welfare state where we can, and I show the film Poor No More in class, where you can go to Stockholm or you can go to Copenhagen and you can see people that are either selling fruits on the, on the street or they're cleaning hotel rooms. And you know that the odds are 95% that they're not going to be poor. Right. And they have a decent life. We have evolved, and it's a result of the nature of Canadian uh, history, the structures, the processes of society, and the discourses that accompany them, that we work on the assumption that people, as you said, economic justice, people get what they deserve. They get what they deserve. I worked hard, therefore. That's, you know, the... the and... and the students are stunned when I talk about the so-called deserving poor. Right. And the deserving poor are people that are sick, people that are ill, and they say, well, what about when a factory closes? Are these people deserving poor as well? And I say, well, you would think they would be, but then the argument is kind of like they should have seen it coming that the uh, Heinz plant was going to close. Right. So, but even then, even with this distinction between the deserving and the undeserving poor, we don't even give the deserving poor anything. So, do you, Dennis, do you think that it's, 
Do you think it's about so so you know not to jump because I I, I want to talk lots about uh, with you about the the issues and the the, the nuances and the subtleties and I'm sure we're going to get into that over the few, next few minutes as as much as we can. But is there a theory action here, a theory practice kind of a thing, or you know, as an academic, do you need to have a deep understanding of this before you can actually do something about it? I think you have. One of the things we've been finding is, and I found this over the years when you talk to people that are uh, activists, Mm -hmm. is they have a deep understanding, or what I would call a structural view of society. They have a view that, and it's, it recalls what C. Wright Mill spoke about in the sociological imagination. He basically said, if you're in a, if you're in a town of 100,000 and two or three people are, are poor, then it's an individual problem. But when you're in a situation where in a country or in a city of a million people and there's two, three hundred thousand people being poor, which is the situation we now have in Toronto, then you have to look beyond the individual and look at the issues of the organization of society, the structures, the processes, and issues of influence and power. Mm. And many people, especially in the U.K., have pointed out that we so focus on poverty as the problem of poor people when actually poverty is a problem with rich people. Right. That poverty results when the distribution of resources is so skewed that there's not enough resources left for the people that are at the bottom 15 Slav- to 20%. Slav- Slavoj says, uh, um, and I'm not sure where, but I think it might be in his book, Event or Truth, he talks about this idea that why, why we can't even talk about charity until, we can't even talk about justice until we get some of these structural, uh, situational um political, ideological problems sorted out. Yeah. Are you, you on that page? Yeah, and what we find is we do research with public health units, and there's some public health units that have really jumped into this in a, in a big way, that they raise issues of distribution and, and influence and power, and there's other health units that kind of limit themselves to the smoking and physical activity. And we did some in-depth interviews, and we were able to get three articles published. And what you find is that people I've known for years and years, when you finally sat down with them and you say, you know, what are the, what are the determinants of health about? Some of them simply just give you a list like, oh, income, housing, and they're like risk factors. But the people that are really engaged, they say, oh, the social determinants of health, are, and of course, social determinants impact the poor most adversely. Income, housing, uh, recreation, but these things are simply reflections of power and influence in the society. It's more of a also it, so so in a sense it's a top down thing from from a problematic perspective. Yes, yes, yeah. absolutely. And in fact, uh, some of the writing I've done recently is uh, going after the Ontario government, for example, of turning it into an individual and family problem, right? As opposed to recognizing it basically as the fact that people are poor 
because they don't have influence and power. What are, what are the social determinants of health? I mean, you just come out of teaching a course, Poverty and Health, at York University, mm-hmm. and I'd love to hear a little bit more about, you know, some of the things maybe some of your students have said. You've shared a little bit about uh, mm-hmm. that with me before we turn the recorder on, but also I'd love to hear about sort of their shift in class. You know, well, did you know? Did you see them, you know, what do you mean poverty and health are connected? And, 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 well, and have, on one level it makes sense, on another not so much. Well, I have two main themes. On, on one hand, I talk about what I call the social determinants of health. And the social determinants of health are the non-medical and non-behavioral factors that affect the health of the population. And we can look upon these as the kind of resources that are made available. So there's issues like income, housing, uh, access to health care. What else? Social exclusion, food security, housing security. And these are basic issues that make it very clear and explicit that we're talking about societal commitment to its citizens. Mm-hmm. And in mm-hmm. theory, when you discuss it, 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 the social determinants cover the range from the very, very rich down to the very, very poor. And it puts up in front issues of income distribution, of right. housing. Right. At the same time, I recognize that the bottom 10 to 15, 20% of the population of Canadians are suffering. And that's why I also focus on issues of poverty. Poverty is the accumulation or the clustering of exposures to these really bad social determinants of health. So when you talk poverty, you're talking about less income, bad housing, bad working conditions, insecurity. And that draws attention to the bottom 15 to 20 percent. The social determinant says these people are really not doing well. But guess what? The insecurity and the bad housing and the low income and the insecure jobs that this bottom 15 to 20 percent are experiencing also is increasingly common to the bottom Mm. 60 percent of the population. Mm. So on one hand, poor people have really bad jobs, insecure jobs, mm-hmm. but now we see it spreading upward into the middle class, such that, what is it now in the GTA, what, 49, 51% of people have precarious work. So on one hand, social determinants of health is uh, a broad approach that says that these issues affect all of us, mm-hmm. while poverty zeroes in to the cluster of people for whom are especially disadvantaged. So, so social determinants of health then is a much more nuanced kind of uh, uh, subtle way of looking at the issues. And well, to, it's, to well, it's it's not necessarily subtle, but it, it's more academic. More academic. But having said that, to really understand poverty, it's the same ideas that they're experiencing adverse living and working conditions. These are generated by public policy, and public policy doesn't come out of a vacuum. And as I I say to my students, look, if you were to call up Kathleen Wynne and say, I'm a single mom going to York University trying to get by, and I'm working on a minimum wage, and my life would really be better if it was five, six, seven dollars more, how much attention are you going to get compared to someone calling up from the the, uh, the Chamber of Commerce, mm. who pleads that if you raise the minimum wage, you know, the, the economy is going to go down the tubes. So ultimately, what it comes down to is influence, power, and the fact that we've developed an economy that appears to be quite content 
with having 15 to 20 percent of people living lives of quiet desperation. And then you ask the question is, how does this come about, and why is it sustained? And it's sustained because poverty is ultimately profitable. Right. It's profitable. You keep wages down, you make people desperate for work, it increases the profits. And whether it's Tim Hortons or it's McDonald's or it's the Royal Bank. So this thing is structural and it's driven and it's not an accident. That's one of the insights that the sociologist C. Wright Mills has. So this so, is not an accident. So when you say it's not an accident or when, when, when the sociologists say that, do they, it's by design? Or well, that it's played out as a result of the pieces that have sort of fallen into place. There's a small line between design and played out. I mean, <laughs> I said to my students it's the funny. other day, do you think that uh, these guys wake up in the middle of the night and they say, you know, we keep wages down, we'll screw these poor people even That's more, right. and that makes me feel good? Or do you recognize that managers all across corporate Canada, their jobs depend on on their ability to generate profits. Yes. And if these guys don't do what they're doing and don't influence government, then they're going to end up being on the other side of the table. Well, so in, in a sense, I mean, really what you're saying is there's no one person. There's no, there's no guy with, with red horns on somewhere well, sitting actually around. there him. is. David Langeal <laughs> wrote a chapter in the Social Determinants yeah. of Health, book, yeah. but he was also the producer of that film, Poor No More. Okay, okay, I know David, actually, yeah. And he goes after, what is it, the Canadian, oh, uh, Thomas Aquino's organization, the Canadian Council of Chief Executives. Okay, okay, I don't know that. Well, this was Thomas Aquino's, and now it's John Manley. And this is the uh, association of the top 50 corporations in Canada. And they have been thoroughly active in lobbying the government to uh, hmm. cut taxes, right. especially taxes on the wealthy, and to cut spending on social programs. And in the movie Poor No More, and in the chapter in my book, Social Determinants of Health, David says clearly these are the people that have been driving it. So was now, that the, was that the Council of Chief Executives, yeah, or was it cheap, cheap Executives? executives. <laughs> chief, yeah. Well, I will. Uh, I, I and I hope some of my listeners will look it up. So, so in a sense, there is there is a big wooden oak table somewhere where a bunch of probably mostly white men are sitting around going, well, "This you is know, a good it idea." Turns out in this recent article that I'll send on to you. Yes, please. Uh, in, in the U.K., there's this very well-known, very respected sociologist called Graham Scambler. And about 10, Great name, by the way. <laughs> 10, 15 years ago, he published something in a really good journal, and he calls it the greedy bastards hypothesis. <laughs> and he Love identifies it. the ruling elite yep. in, in Britain for whom... Economic globalization has provided an opportunity to maximize profits. Mm. And don't forget Jordan Brennan from York University, who has been able to document that there's a direct correlation between corporate power, which he operationalizes as the profits of the top 50 or 60 corporations in Canada, income inequality, and the power of unions. Mm. In fact, when you correlate the three of them, the correlation is, is like almost perfect. That over time, when corporate power has become more powerful, at the same time, unionization uh, density has declined and income inequality has increased. Right. 
and he's published that at CCPA. I think it's called The Shrinking Universe. So you can, you can point fingers. So are you a, are you a triple bottom liner? A triple bottom so liner? So pe- people, people, plant, whoa, people, planet, prosperity, you know, you know, Friedman's... Uh, no, I'm not familiar n- with that. Well, Friedman's whole notion is, you know, uh, what's the, uh, the purpose of a, a corporation is to increase profits yeah, period right increase, I respect that increase the bottom line but what what some people are starting to say including the liberals actually that we believe in a triple bottom line which is about people planet and profit or in yeah, some cases yeah. prosperity so it's a little more um hmm, human occasionally I guess. you get these real uh, in the movie porn no more that david did david langeel did they're interviewing the uh shop the head of the union in scandic in uh, Stockholm. Okay. And they're talking to him, and they say, how do you get along with the, because uh, he sits on the board of directors, this sh- uh, the union guy. Right. And it, they're legislated by law, and he said, well, what's your relationship with the corporation? And this guy basically said, look, when it comes down to it, they know we have the power. And then he goes on to say, and this is a working class guy in Sweden, right? Right. He said, it's a bit like the Cold War, when everybody had the nukes, but nobody wanted to use it. Right. And he said, the corporation knows that we have the power, but they don't want to see us use it, so it's in everybody's interest. And, of course, in Scandinavia, because of the influence and power of the unions, there is no minimum wage legislation. Right. So when, when, when I say to the students, when we get you know, almost the first week of class of the 12-week course, they begin asking me, why is it like this? What can we do? And we say, well, we'll get to that. Right, right. But certainly, uh, you know, 10, 15, uh, what is it, 19, this is 2015, probably about 20 years ago when I first started doing this, I was of the view that all you had to do was lay out the evidence, point out about people's lives, uh, show how people don't decide to be poor, right. that it has adverse consequences for the society, and that if we did things differently, everybody would benefit. I just assumed everybody would jump on the bandwagon right. and, and, and run with it. Yeah. But as time has gone by and as you peel the, the onion away, yes. you peel the different level, you begin to realize and you read other stuff and you read uh, Eric Olin Wright. And he argues that, and Navarro and other people, they argue the reason you have this is that it works. Hmm. It works. And, and you take these guys who are corporate magnates who have these huge homes and lovely wives, or if they happen to be corporate women, beautiful husbands. Mm-hmm. The system works for them. It works for their kids. It works for them. Well, and is that is that part of sort of the ideological uh, um, tenacity of it all? I suppose that that folks in that position, in that level, say, "Hey, it seems to be working pretty well for me." So, yeah. you know, Dennis, don't tell me about poverty in Canada. I'm not really interested in taking your course, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then when they do get presented with it, it's typically at the point of purchase donation at Walmart, or or it's somebody knocking on the door, or it's the Cub Scout selling apples and they might be reminded from time to time that these issues exist, but it's outside of their frame of reference. Well, I'll be honest with you. I, it, it's difficult for me to understand how they think. Mm. For me to understand how they think and, and to think like them would almost be like them thinking like me. Right. And the way I describe it, uh, you know, I'm very much a product of uh, growing up in New York City, 
uh, parents were immigrants. Uh, the teach, uh, you know, the 1950s and 1960s, the textbooks in New York City talked about American imperialism. They talked about the robber barons. And in grade six, the teacher explained the difference between capitalism, socialism, and communism. Do you have a signed copy of the Communist Manifesto, Dennis? Is that what you're trying I to tell me? Signed <laughs> copy. But basically, you you have to remember also from about 1946 to about 1975, income inequality in North America was at its lowest. Yes. And I was a product of that, where the jobs were plentiful. And everybody, whether you're in the bottom quintile or the top quintile of income, everybody did better. But then, of course, in the mid-'70s, that all changed, and the ideology changed, and people's expectations changed. And uh, so what happens now is the country, where students are stunned to hear that when I say that Canada has never been as wealthy as it is now. There's more resources available now than there's ever been. Well, isn't this an argument... I mean, right out of the gate, isn't this an argument against trickle-down economics, this idea that it will finally get to the people who need it most? Well, you keep hearing it, right? Yes. The other day they came out, some business group came out and said, you can't raise the minimum wage, it'll hurt the very people we're trying to help. Wow. Gave me an opportunity wow. to talk to my class about South Africa, and we weren't supposed to boycott South African wine because it would hurt the very people we're trying to help. But you have this evolution, and it's been especially bad in Canada, the United States, and Britain. But it's not been like this everywhere. Right. But the idea is that during the mid-1970s, and again, David Langell does a wonderful job in his chapter in my Social Determinants of Health Canadian Perspectives book about how corporate Canada began to realize that they can't begin to influence and shape public policy. And they basically decided to go uh, whole hog on it and to begin to pressure, and, you know, they... They responded. You know, the, the chief architect of the destruction of the welfare state in Canada was the Liberal government in Ottawa. Right. So you cut back, you cry uh, poverty, and that didn't happen everywhere else. I mean, neoliberalism and economic globalization has had effects everywhere, but they've been much more profound here. Well, doesn't the OECD say that in uh, from a? I don't like the, uh, the 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 term developing country and 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 uh, non-developing country or third world. I don't I don't like any of that. But if you look at those types of you know quantitative factors, isn't Canada actually one of the worst when it comes to we're supposedly a developed country and yet we have such a high level of of poverty as you sort of well, defined earlier? Well, the OECD earlier. is basically. I mean, when you get a bunch of economists right. to say figures are going bad. But the real uh, finger point is have been the United Nations mm. in terms of all the special rapporteurs. Right. Whether it's housing or whether it's Aboriginal or whether it's Sidor, the convention to end all forms of discrimination. And uh, that is, I mean, Canada is really, really doing badly. And occasionally I say to my students, oh, maybe I got this all wrong. But then something will come out, like the 29% of families living in poverty in, in Toronto, or the IMF, International Monetary Fund, will say that inequality is suppressing growth, uh, or the OECD will point out. Uh, I'll give you two little pieces of information. One is that Canada's had uh, one of the highest... Well, Canada's been growing in terms of income inequality, uh, 
and uh, it's kind of leveled off lately, but over the last 15 years, it was one of the highest. Mm. And Canada's had the lowest increase in life expectancy among OECD countries. Right. So you're beginning to see the manifestation uh, of all of this. And uh, as you know, this, it, it has a variety of effects. Uh, people become alienated. People stop voting. Uh, so there are some signs of optimism, but the bottom line is that there's different ways that capitalist economies have been organized. And in Scandinavia, there's, there's always been a deep suspicion of it. And the result has been structures and processes that uh, see very strong unionization, see uh, intersectoral bargaining, a lot of cooperation among unions. And as a result, it's managed. The, the economy is managed. And even in the continental countries, the so-called Bismarckian welfare states that developed in the 1870s, Belgium, France, Holland, Germany, uh, what you, Netherlands, what you see basically there is a deep-rooted, uh, not suspicion, but uh, a lack of complete endorsement of laissez-faire principles. Hmm. So there's a lot of social insurance, the largest insurance company in Switzerland is non-profit. So you see a lot of uh, concern with uh, promoting cohesion and solidarity. Why, Dennis, why should I care about any of this? You know? Well, basically because it points out that there are alternatives to what we're right. experiencing now. And then you know, finally, the liberal countries are the Anglo-Saxon countries, yeah. where uh, the market is the dominant. I, I, actually, I don't mean about the Nordic uh, approach. What I mean, I guess, I, sorry, I should have contextualized that mm -hmm. a little bit more. I mean, as an individual, right? I read your book. I read your most recent article in The Spectator, which I'll put a link to, by the way, on the, on the site. Mm. Um, I read it and I go, yeah, okay, well, you know what, there are people dealing with this, uh, you know, I don't need to get involved. So I guess, as a Canadian, is it, why do I care? Does it have something to do with your comment earlier about it's, it is more of a community affair now? Well, when you well look first at on the an individual level, yeah. I, say to, I say to my students, I say, you know, what happens if uh, you wake up in the middle of the night and you hear voices telling you not to go to work tomorrow? In other words, you have a psychotic yeah. nervous breakdown. Yeah, sure, I sure. Said, do you think anybody is going to stop you from being homeless? Do you think anybody, anything in this society is going to assure that you have a decent place to live and receive the kind of care? Or if your factory closes, you think anybody's going to retrain you? you think anybody's going to make significant effort to make sure that you don't end up on the street? And the answer is no, no, absolutely not. But in contrast, that doesn't happen in other countries. Right. So on an individual level, I say to them, you do not know how incredibly vulnerable you are. Mm, nice. I say, how many of you work? And oh, a whole bunch raise their hand. Yeah, sure. How many of you have long-term disability? They don't even know what it is. So on an individual level, things are going to happen to you. And they're going to happen to you anyway. You're going to get old. You're going to get sick. You're going to lose your job, and there's absolutely no structures out there that's going to assure that you're going to be okay. Right. Now, on a broader level, even if you are okay, even if you are a lawyer or a physician or have a, uh, some kind of job that you're going to be secure, do you really want to live in a, in a country with so many desperate people? Do you really want to live in a place where you just know that 20, 30... 
35, 40% of people are being disenfranchised. And then you get into issues of crime and insecurity. So, you know, like, what's the point? And there's no reason for it. And then you make the argument that not only with all of these things such as, oh, universal affordable child care or pharmacare or tuition uh, credits, not only would that be better for you, it would actually improve the economy. Right. So there's a whole list, you know, it's like a, it's as long as you're on <laughs> about why we should be doing something to help people out. And then, of course, the question inevitably gets raised is the students just say, Why? Why is it like this? Yeah, why is it like this in the first place? So, is, does, you know, you, you, you keep referring to the sort of Scandinavia, the Nordic solution. It sounds almost like there's more of a communitarian approach. There's a, there's, it, it, are they more human than we are, Dennis? Well, I tell you, it's not, in many ways, I'm more struck by the conservative countries of huh. France and Germany and Belgium okay. and Holland. Okay. They do studies there where they do surveys. They ask people, does the government, uh, does the government have a role in assuring everybody uh, can have a decent job? Or does, uh, does the state or does the government have a role to ensure that, uh, what else, uh, that, that people have good jobs, that they're taken care of? And you find that businessmen, the people that own uh, Bayer or own BMW, they have a more enlightened attitudes than hmm. people in North America do. Hmm. Hmm. So you do, I mean, I'm more familiar with the studies in the United States. Yeah. You, poor people in the United States are less likely to agree with those statements than, than the wealthy business uh, magnates are in the conservative. So are, are we are we are we living in these? Is it is it is it the cocoons we're all living in? Is it is it the six foot fences in our backyards? I mean, what what is causing us to be so, like you say, disenfranchised or disconnected well, from I think, others? I think there's a mantra. There's constant repetition. Hmm. That there's, you know, I mean, you see this all the time. I'll be at a conference and somebody from Health Canada or Public Health Agency or the Ontario government will say, in a time of scarce resources. Mm-hmm. And I'll jump up and say, what are you talking about? What scarce resources? Right. And then they come out and say, oh, the Canadian public doesn't want us to spend. So the idea is, as has been elucidated by numerous people like uh, Edward Grab, a prophet, uh, I believe is at Weston, has a book on social inequality. And he, like others, and he's not the first one, Marx spoke about the base, which is the economic and political system, and the superstructure, which is the ideology that comes to justify it. Gary Teeple, who wrote Globalization and the Decline of Social Reform, the argument is, is that the powers that be that control the economic and political system also shape the public ideas or conversations, mm. which mm. we call discourses. So if you hear enough and enough that there's no money, uh, you know, it's interesting, uh, 10, 15 years ago, the argument was there was no money for child care. Right. There was no money for that. Now they don't even bother with those arguments anymore. It's kind of two-pronged. On one hand, they say, oh, there's really, we're in a time of austerity, there's no resources available. Yet at the same time, uh, they have no hesitation about uh, spending you know, hundreds of millions on this or that. So uh, what I'm saying is there's this constant messaging, some of it contradictory. Sure, of course. That's yep. that the average person comes to believe that their future doesn't depend upon the state, but depends upon their own ability to sell themselves on the marketplace. Right. 
And the interesting thing so it comes, is... So it comes, down to your own re- it comes down to your resume and how well it's written. And, and you know, tell you the way the world is? It is an accurate depiction. Yeah. It's an accurate depiction. I say to my students, you think of your life in 15, 20 years from now, whether you'll be happy, healthy, your family will be okay. Is that going to be a function of the state? Passing or government passing rules, regulations that provide you with decent employment and security, or is it going to be the ability of you to sell yourself on the marketplace? Right. And when you talk to people in not only Scandinavia but also in in continental Europe, they recognize that uh, the state has a role. It's not just Scandinavia; it's these other countries as well. Here, we have been led to believe that the state is bad, the state is mm-hmm. corrupt. Mm-hmm. For whatever reason, we still cling to it yeah. in Canada. It's, it's quite the Medicare. double think, isn't it? Yeah, Medicare. But but that, now to, to kind of flip the coin and start to say what are some promising things. Well, I am stunned how sometimes things start to make it in all the papers. Pharmacare. All of a sudden, people are talking about Pharmacare. It's not just the star, it's the globe. Mm-hmm. And people are starting to raise the issue of precarious work. Now, I don't know why suddenly precarious work begins to get the attention of people. But increasingly, people are becoming aware that things aren't going the way they should be going. Right. And uh, I know the head of the C.D. Howe Institute. We used to work together on some issues a long time ago, and I ran into him recently. And I said, Bill, I said, things are getting so bad that I'm even beginning to agree with some of the stuff you're turning out. <laughs> and it's the same thing with the Conference Board of Canada. They're turning out stuff that says inequality is bad, that we're falling behind other countries, and that it would not hurt the economy. But the Conference Board is fairly enlightened. Well, on some, I mean, Dennis, on some level, doesn't it at some point become self-referentially incoherent? In other words, the system feeds into the system. It's a vicious circle. Uh, what, 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 how, do you, how do you break out of it? Well, how do you break out of it? I say to my students, I said, you know, whatever you decide to do, it's going to be wonderful because nobody's doing anything. <laughs> right. You know? So, you know, you, I mean, I just put together a table for the next edition of my social determinants book. A uh, few things. Canadian Medical Association takes this show on the road, comes out with a big report that said what makes us sick. Mm. The Sudbury Health Unit uh, creates a video called Let's Start a Conversation About Health and Not Talk About Health Care at All, and 20 other units out of 36 in Ontario adapt it. Mm. So they're doing public education about broader determinants of health. The uh, Ryan Maelli, who ran for the NDP leadership in uh, Saskatchewan twice and just barely lost, started this organization called Upstream, which is really rather uh, good, mm-hmm. and it's raising broader health issues. Yuha uh, McConan, who's a, uh, a Finnish national who was a visiting student, now he's one of my PhD students, he and I created this primer called uh, Social Determinants of Health, the Canadian Facts, and we put it online five years ago been downloaded 300,000 times. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Yeah, And uh, everybody has it. Everybody knows about it. Uh, so you have a lot of civil society action. You have a lot of the public beginning to recognize. The NDP actually mentions the term social determinants of health on their website. Hmm. Uh, you have a lot of 
recognition, but to date, it would be very hard to show that it has had any influence right. on public policy. Right. When governments do the right stuff, whether it's even the Harper government putting some money into housing, they don't do it as, as a health issue. But getting back to poverty, uh, they met the, uh, the, the issue, it's become mainstreamed. Right. Everybody yep. has mm-hmm. an anti-poverty strategy. I think some of them are more promising than others. So, for example, Newfoundland and Labrador recently hired Ryan Maley's group to help out. And my sense was that they've been more successful in Newfoundland, and they've had a more community-based. Well, I mean, what I'm hearing is, Dennis, that people aren't sweeping it under the carpet, maybe like they have been over the last few years, that the Star, the Globe, people are writing about it, people are talking about it. You're just Mm. saying not, maybe not quite enough yet? Well, let me put it this way. There's... You know, there's enough there that you could bring a story in and show it to your students and say, here's the good news. Right. But I point out to them, like, I, I, it's like trench warfare. Right. I mean, I, the latest thing was I was talking about Ontario's anti-poverty strategy. And I popped up a video on, from YouTube of Deb Matthews. And the second phase of their strategy is to emphasize the importance of local action. Right. So they come up with this $50 million uh, plan over six years to make small grants up to $100,000 or so available to highlight local action. Well, I can tell you, when you read, when you read the OECD or when you read these Innocente Research uh, Institute, which does child poverty stuff, nobody, nobody says that local solutions are the answer. Mm. Nobody says that building 15 houses in Hamilton or highlighting that this particular drop-in center is helping women put their resumes together. That is not how countries have been able to deal with issues of poverty. The way you deal with issues of poverty are all the things that the liberals in Ontario called for when they were in opposition. Make it easy to unionize. Make uh, the minimum wage a living wage. Right. all of that stuff, affordable child care, housing, structural issues that not only redistribute uh, the income and wealth that's available, but increases the power and influence of poor people, they will not go near that. So this piece I wrote uh, uh, went after Deb Matthews, uh, because when you come out and you say the solution is local, you're basically saying that there's nothing we can do anymore. Right. And, of course, my students then raise their hand and say, well, who is this Deb Matthews? Doesn't she know about the stuff that we've just learned in this class? <laughs> right, right. And then I said, you know what? She has a B.A. in sociology and a Ph.D. in mm-hmm. social demography. In fact, the students specifically said, well, doesn't she know about the sociology of poverty and how government policies both cause it and can remedy it? And I say, yeah, she knows. If you have a BA and a PhD yeah. in sociology, you know yeah. what's going there's, on. There's a level of understanding. Dennis, we're going to have to wrap it up in a second, and I, I, I really do hate to do that, but, but uh, maybe we can do a part two down the road. Mm. Tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, we talked before the recorder started, we talked a little bit about some of, you know, you're coming out of the, a recent um, uh, course, Health and po- uh, Poverty at York, and some of the reports, you know, the, 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 from your students saying, you know, one of your, I think one of your questions was, mm. how, how has your understanding shifted? 
you know, I want to, you know, at the risk of, of, of oversimplifying, I wouldn't mind ending on a bit of a hopeful note. Well, it know? is. It's, it's remarkable. You have uh, 125 students. Uh, they come in. Uh, they've been exposed to some broader concepts of political theory and sociological theory. And within the first week, they begin to understand that it's not an accident. Right. It's not an unfortunate byproduct of a changing society. And I say to them, this is basically denying what we've been taught about democracy and pluralism and the best ideas carry the day. I said, unfortunately, that's not the way it is. It, and then we hearken back to Max Weber and Karl Marx and other theorists that say, unfortunately, the way things are organized, it's a competition. It's competition for influence and power. And right now, we're losing. Mm. And we, being students that attend York, who don't have wealth, who an unbelievable number of them are immigrants of color. Mm-hmm. It is really remarkable how the face of Toronto has changed. Mm-hmm. But I point out to them that this is not good news, that there are people, there are sectors out there that are systematically profiting from this. Right. And 20, 30 years ago, they were doing less well, and now they're doing a lot better. And they're doing it because they've been successful at shifting tax structures, at changing uh, what is available by uh, nature of being a citizen or, or, or a permanent resident, and that ultimately, I say to them, uh, a theory best explains how we've got here and how we get out. Mm. You could see poverty as individual failings, and we set up education programs, counseling programs, anger management, and tell husbands to save with their wives, and how far is that going to get us? <laughs> or we can manage it and increase some tax credits here and there, make sure kids don't have their teeth pulled out, uh, set up breakfast programs or feeding programs, as some of us call them. Or you could begin to pull back and say, maybe we should be focusing on making it easy to unionize. Maybe we should focus on <coughs> excuse me, increasing the taxes on the wealthy. Because certainly, I point out to them, if you look at the top 20%, they, are in, let's say, they, they, they take away 175000 a year. Poor families, 20% take home 20000 a year. If you shifted 20000 from the 170 to the people on the bottom, you turn their lives around on right. a dime. Right. And that's right. what most enlightened countries do um, mm. in terms of their tax structures. And we're constantly reducing the taxes on, on the wealthy, although in Ontario there was a very slight increase. But, of course, you know, the Globe and other papers said this was going to be the end of capitalism as we know it. Right, right. So doesn't look like that's coming anytime it, soon. So students come to appreciate that this is bigger than individual failings, and that they need to get involved in the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives or Canada Without Poverty or the NDP. And uh, they go away both, uh, I guess, very surprised. Yeah, well, it, I, I mean, I hope they go away if, uh, on some level uh, challenged, but also sort of affirmed in a way, you know, the, that, you know, you, you can make a difference. There is a way of getting involved. There are things that can be written and studies that can be done and, yep. and, and ways of, there's a different, I mean, there's so many different levels of activism, I suppose, but, but, uh, 
Yeah, well, first thing they have to do is they have to decide they're going to vote. Well, yeah, exactly right. Yeah, I'm I'm with you there. Okay. Um, thank you so much for your time today. I, um, uh, Dennis Raphael, author of Poverty in Canada and uh, 249 other publications. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today, okay, Dennis. Thank I you. Really appreciate it.